So it's been said many times before that bands have their entire life to write their first album. So it stands to reason that this would be their best and probably classic offering. It only took Hollywood an hour and a half to write his debut album while playing five-car stud at the poker tables, and no record company wanted to even come near it. We are talking all about our favorite debut albums with a little bit of a twist here on the Grown Up Rock Podcast. Now, crank it up. definitely can't do anything simple. We always got a little twist. <laughs> it would have been too simple just to go, hey, let's talk about some of our favorite debut rock albums. But man, when I started getting into these rock albums, there are tons, especially because we didn't have any that were date specific. So this literally could have been, you know, 1960s on to 2020. I tried to do a little bit something with my particular picks, and I know both of us sort of agreed that we weren't going to really cover albums that had sold more than a million copies, right? Yeah, and then so I go, all right, anything that's basically under double platinum can be on the list. My list was like 40 albums. I'm like, oh my God, okay, I, let me take out platinum altogether and just go gold or below. My list went to like 32 albums. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, I guess take the gold out and where do I land? And I still had 23 albums left that I had to pare down to 10. So mine didn't even go gold. I had to go there just to be able to pare it down. Yeah. So that's great because you and I then ended up on the same page. I did exactly the same thing. I didn't have as many initially as you did. I just kind of went through my music library. When a band hit me, I was like, oh yeah, they had a great debut record. And I pulled that aside. And then when I started looking at the numbers and doing the numbers, I had a couple of bands that had sold 500,000 more or more went gold. And I had a couple of bands that were just over a million copies. So I 
did away with the bands that sold over a million copies, got me down to gold, and then did away with the gold altogether. So all the bands that I'm going to talk about tonight are below gold. And then I even have some that I can call an audible on based on what you call out. Because you and I, we didn't discuss this ahead of time, right? Yeah, we didn't share our list because, you know, part of the fun is we don't know what each other picks. What ended up happening to me, and I don't know if it happened to you, is once you get rid of anything that basically got certified gold or higher, then it puts you into this time frame that's very dense because anything that was even an inkling of popular between 75 and let's say 87 went gold or platinum anyway, because it was the time where everybody bought physical product, right? So what ended up happening to me was mine ended up in a time frame where physical product either was going by the wayside or there were so many bands that you couldn't buy them all if you wanted to. And these guys got left kind of in the rubble. So that's where I ended up. Yeah, because it would have been really simple, I think, for both of us to pick 20 great debut records from the last five years that didn't go gold because there are easily 20 great debut records over the last five years that you and I know didn't go gold because physical product wasn't selling, right? Yeah, mine uh, ended up way older than that because I've got some Desert Island albums on this list because there were albums I really connected with in my earlier years that just didn't go gold. And they happen to be debut records. So I didn't have to go super new, but if we would have had that, yeah, it would have been easy to find. So let's not get too far deep into this. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. All right. So tonight's. Crank It Up, New Music Spotlight, comes to us from another UK band. The band is Vega. They released their sixth album called Grit Your Teeth. I think this came out roughly a couple of months ago. And for me, the first part of the album is really pretty strong. There's some really strong material on it. And then it kind of tapers off towards the end of the album. And Vega as a whole, they're fairly new band to me, meaning that they're new to me personally. They've been around for a while. Nick Workman on vocals, Tom Martin on bass and guitar, Marcus Thurston on guitar, James Martin on keyboards, Mikey Q on guitar, and Martin Hutchinson on drums. Both Tom Martin and James Martin are brothers, so these guys could have easily been on our siblings episode that we had a few weeks back. Check out this song, Don't Fool Yourself. Let us know what you think of Vega. Baby's got it going on. She don't care, she don't belong. Everybody feel it. You gotta feel it. Sometimes it may feel wrong.
So I don't know why this keeps happening, but it's really starting to piss me off. So I'm following manually all of these record companies trying to keep up with all their releases. And Frontiers is one that I follow religiously. And somehow I missed this album even came out. I don't know what I got to do to track it all. I love that song. And there was a song, they released a single called, I think, Man on a Mission. I love that song too. And I was waiting for the album to come out and come to find out the album came out three months ago. Well, I guess maybe that's partly my fault. I should keep you more in the loop because I get all this stuff advanced. So I get a lot of this, uh, especially with Frontiers. I'm really dialed in with their promotions these days. So I got the Vega record, you know, four months ago and started listening to it a little bit and had a chance and talked to a lot of people that were Vega fans way before me and said, yeah, you got to listen to this, you got to listen to this because they got five albums worth of material. And when I started going through their material, they got a lot of great stuff, but they don't have one album that's complete for me. They really tie the line between some great heavier guitar melodic rock and then just too watered down for me stuff. And so, you know, if if it doesn't have that guitar driven sound, I kind of tune out. I got to have that guitar. Some of their stuff does. This song does. I like the groove in this song. Uh, And like I said, the first part of this record, the first half of this record is really good. And then it sort of tapers off for me. And it's not to say that there's not some great stuff towards the end of the record. It's just overall, that's my impression of this particular record. That's where I stand with the band Vega. Yeah, Nick's got a great voice, and uh, the melody on that song is awesome. So uh, it's honestly one of the better releases so far this year, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, another Frontiers uh, record. So there you go. Frontiers doing a great job, as always. All right, so before we get into tonight's episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to all the people on the Gulf Coast, because at the time of this recording, a hurricane came through, and it's a personal thing for me because I got a lot of family on the Gulf Coast, and they were affected by this hurricane. Talked to uh, a few family members today. Everybody is safe, which is a great thing, but some of the property uh, is damaged, and uh, trees are down, and bridges are out, and power is out, and so uh, they're struggling a little bit down there on the Gulf Coast. And I just wanted to uh, give a quick shout out and let people know that I'm thinking about them right now and uh, praying. So thanks for uh, giving me that minute or two to do that. Yeah, that kind of stuff, man. Even in California with, you know, the fires and the civil unrest and the power outages, like I I feel for everybody there because of flood, man, that's a hard one to deal with. The fire, at least you can see it coming a little bit and you can do something when, uh, the hurricanes come, man, they come quick. Yeah, I'll tell you what, that one was not even a huge hurricane, but it dumped so much water. Uh, they had Good Morning America was on, I guess, yesterday morning or, or whatever. And uh, uh, my hometown, Main Street, was literally underwater. I was like, holy cow. Uh, so it's not, not fun to see, but uh, I think everybody will be everybody's fine. And that's the most important thing. And then, you know, stuff can be replaced and bought, uh, with insurance and all that other stuff. So, uh, that's the most important thing, but hopefully they'll get their power back. And, uh, there's a couple of bridges out that cut them off from getting 
to certain places. So we'll, we'll see. So getting back to the rock here. Yep. This should be interesting because I don't know how many repeats we'll have. I can guarantee you my number one ain't your number one. I'll bet money on that. There's no way. You know what? I was kind of worried that it might be, or at least that my number one would be in your number 10, you know, in your top 10. So uh, we'll see. Uh, but like I said, I, ca- I got audibles that I can call because there were two or three <laughs> audibles that I'm like, okay, if Sonny picks this, I'm just going to call an audible on this. And there's one that I'm almost 100% betting that's on your list. And I hope it is because it ne- <laughs> it needs to be spoken about. So if you don't put it on your list and I don't have it on my list, we have to speak about it at some point because it deserves that. But truthfully, when I went through my list, I tried to pick bands that we here at Grown Up Rock haven't spent a ton of time promoting. It's not that we don't like them. It's just not, you know what I'm saying, right? Uh, Yeah, I didn't do that at all. I went straight by, you know what? I'm just going to go pick my favorites. And there's a lot on my list that we talk about a lot. Uh, at least the bands we talk about a lot, and some will connect to past episodes. A lot of them ended up on the same year. I really don't care because they're still my faves. Fair enough. All right. Are we ready to do this or what? Go for it. I think we're starting with you. All right. So I'm going to give my first three. And basically, like I said, my criteria for picking these records were records that meant something to me at some period in my life. I tried to divide up the years, meaning that I tried to go into the 80s, into the 90s, and into the 2000s with my picks. Something far enough away, like, you know, 82, and something close enough as recent as 2018. So, and then all points in between. So I'm going to start with a record that I know I've mentioned on this podcast before, and it's a cult record. And, and by the way, before I get too deep into this, probably at least half of the bands that I talk about here tonight, Sonny, they're not Sonny's thing. Uh, and, and I'm okay with that. I get it. But I had to throw that out there because I can almost feel your eyes rolling at some of my uh, uh, selections tonight, but that's all right. So my number 10 is a band called Life, Sex, and Death. LSD for short. I know it's pretty cult favorite band amongst a lot of podcasters and other rock fans. It's a record that literally did nothing. It came out in 1992. The name of the record is The Silent Majority. It's the only record that this band put out. And the band basically was somewhat of a gimmick band. They had this singer that was basically a bum and stunk to high hell, but was really interesting on stage. And I think part of the reason I love this record so much is that I did get to see the band live, so I tie their live show to this record. But I think it's a fantastic debut record, and it's called The Silent Majority, LSD. Uh, It also features Alex... God, I can't remember Alex's last name, but he's currently in Enough's Enough. And he was like, I think, the original guitar player in Enough's Enough, like before they got their record contract. But LSD, check it out. Life, Sex, and Death, The Silent Majority, 1992. If you can find it, go check that record out. It's an interesting record. 
right. Number nine for me is a band called Shotgun Messiah with their record. Came out in 1989, sold way less than 500,000 copies. This is a solid record from start to finish. They were just kind of a glam rock band that came at the tail end of things and never really made it. But this record, I listened to it today. I listened to a lot of this stuff over the course of the last week. It's just a really solid rock record.
Love It A Lot, Shotgun Messiah, self-titled, 1989. And then number eight is the debut record by Vandenberg. Came out in 1982. Adrian Vandenberg went on to be in White Snake, but his first band, and now they're, they've resurfaced and he's rebooted the band, uh, and they've released a record this year that I think is really a good, solid record. But their original lineup with the debut record, I think, is just a great, solid rock record, especially for 1982. Now, if you go back and you listen to it today, the recording-wise, you know, it's not up to snuff with today's recording just because it was 1982. But yeah, I love that record and I got to see them as well. And I think I tied together the live show with the record release at the time. I saw them with Kiss and Riot on the, I think, Creatures of the Night or Lick It Up Tour. Lick It Up Tour, I guess, is what we finally figured out was the tour for that particular lineup. So Vandenberg at number eight with their self-titled record, 1982 release. That's it. That's my first three. Yeah, I've never heard of the Life, Sex, and Death record. Never heard of that. Shotgun Messiah. I've I've listened to that before. I I might own it. I don't even know that. And then Vandenberg. I got through like half of it, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, because I didn't know Vandenberg existed until after White Snake was already out and about. So going back and checking it out, I'm like, well, I was kind of hoping for more White Snakey stuff, and this isn't really that. So I got through about half the record. And I'm like, I'm done. No, they're about a straight ahead rock band. And I don't really think Life, Sex, and Death thing is your thing at all. I don't think you'll dig that record too much, but I like it a lot and it's definitely a little different. But what made them so great is their whole their whole thing, the whole gimmick, the whole show, everything made them really, really good. So uh, and I wanted to spotlight those three because we haven't spent a whole lot of time with Vandenberg, Shotgun Messiah, or Life, Sex and Death. So uh, hopefully the listeners will get something out of those three bands if they haven't already heard of them and uh, go out and check out some of that stuff. Okay, so my top 10, I'm going to give you my 10, 9, and 8. And since none of these went gold, my guess is our listeners don't have them because they never bought them. So go buy these because the, some of these names, you know. So my number 10, believe it or not, Vinnie Vincent Invasion, the first album. And I know the guitars, nuts, and some of it is tinny because the production's not all that great. But it was released in 86, Chrysalis. You got Vinnie Vincent, got Dana Strum, got Bobby Rock, Robert Fleischman. The story is, depending on who you believe, Kiss was looking for a new guitarist. They enlist Strum to help him out. They don't like anybody Dana's putting in front of them. And Dana starts working with Vinnie instead. Songs were, depending on who you believe, reworked demos from 1982 that involved... New England members, Hirsch, Gardner, Gary Shea, and Jimmy Waldo. So then Hirsch sues later because he's like, well, you used all this stuff and you didn't pay us and you didn't ask us our permission. So I guess he must've won the lawsuit because there's a story where Vinny is standing on the toilet in a stall holding his pink guitar as <laughs> Hirsch's people on tour are taking all of his stuff and repossessing his stuff on the Iron Maiden tour they were opening for. So that's kind of how the story goes in. Hearst told that story, so I'm assuming it's true. Yeah, I heard I heard that story as well. Uh, Fleischman never signed his contract because, of course, he had a contract dispute with Vinny. 
So although Fleischman did all the vocals on the album, Slaughter was in the video lip syncing to the first video, which was Boys Are Gonna Rock. So they had two singles, Boys Are Gonna Rock, Back on the Streets, neither one charted. The album got to number 64 in the Billboard 200, but never got to gold. And, you know, there's some really good songs on there. I would say Back on the Streets is probably my favorite, but uh, Do You Want to Make Love, No Substitute, Shoot You Full of Love. Like, if you like Vinnie Vincent, and honestly, the second album is a desert album for me. Uh, this is a great debut, so you should check it out if you haven't. I have to be honest. I'm absolutely amazed that in that time period that the Kiss Army alone didn't purchase enough records from Vinnie Vincent to make that a gold record. Yeah, I think there's two pieces to that. One is Vinnie replaced Ace, and you figure any Ace fan got off the bus. And then Vinny didn't really wow anybody. Like all the things you hear about, about Lick It Up songs are great and Revenge songs are great and he wrote some great stuff. That's all true, but that's all armchair quarterback stuff happening in the 2000s. In the 80s, it was like uh, they took off their makeup and there's no Ace. Not interested. Yeah, interesting. Right? Yeah. So Ace's first album, I don't think went gold either. Huh. Fraley's Comet didn't go gold, but he had waited five years to put it out. So, you know, people don't even know Ace is around anymore. Yeah. All right, my number nine, the best album I own, period, my opinion, is by Extreme, this porno graffiti. And my number nine is their self-titled debut. Now, at this point, the band members are the original four, Gary Sharon, Nuno, Pat Badger, Paul Gary. This album opens up with kind of a meh track, though. I got to be honest with that. And it opens up with harmonica, which is a little bit ballsy because they got part Queen and part Aerosmith going. But like in Little Girls, which is that first song, there's a 20-second solo in there by Betancourt, and it Im immediately makes you wonder if this is like a new breed of guitarist. So that was there from the beginning. The picture on the album is unbelievably brutal, if you remember the picture. I mean, it is brutal, brutal. <laughs> the lyrics, there's a lot about childhood. I'm honestly surprised this album didn't go gold, because you would think that after Porno Graffiti and More Than Words hit, people usually go backwards and end up buying the album before that, too. But because of who was buying porno graffiti because of more than words, I don't think those uh, Wayfair fans, I guess you could say, were going to go backwards and buy this album. So it didn't really help them. <laughs> Wayfair fans. That's, Wayfair. <laughs> that's, a that's, that's uh, the 2000s soccer mom is now Wayfair fans. <laughs> yeah. The album had four singles, Little Girls, Kitty Go, Mother, and Play With Me. None of them charted on the Billboard 100. Kid Eagle got to number 39 on the mainstream rock chart. Uh, the album went to number 80 on Billboard 200. There's some unbelievable guitar songs on here, but I'll tell you, if you have never heard Teacher's Pet, you need to go listen to the song Teacher's Pet off this album, and you'll get an idea of what I'm talking about because it's very Van Halen, and it's really a really good, uh, diverse album. I just don't think it went gold because I don't know if your debut album can be diverse, if that makes sense.
and you know the other thing about that so you're talking about little girls being the opening track the first thing that hits me about that opening track is nuno's guitar tone on that opening riff after the harmonica thing is done is really edward van halen sounding uh the riff itself and the tone itself in my opinion i liked it from the get-go but you know one thing you didn't mention is uh, really this thing had a lot of exposure with play with me on the original bill and ted right uh yeah i think so i believe so i'm not positive on that i mean that was a huge movie at that point in time and that i think was maybe one of the first places that i heard play with me if i'm not mistaken i'm kind of fuzzy going back that far but i want to say that was a big deal at the time so uh i guess it didn't help them in the long run because they didn't go gold yeah it's just weird my number eight Badlands self-titled, and there are some great songs on this album. Uh, released in 89, Atlantic Records. You're talking Jakey Lee, Ray Gillen, Eric Singer, Greg Chasen. Lee gets fired out of Ozzy's brand. He's out there looking for a great front man. He meets Ray Gillen, who's briefly been in Black Sabbath. They go get Chasen. Gillen, new singer from Black Sabbath, and bam, you have a killer band, and they're killer live. They released two singles, Dreams in the Dark and Winner's Call. Neither one charted on the Billboard 100. It, it wouldn't have had a shot anyway. Uh, Dreams in the Dark got to 38 on the mainstream rock chart. The album went to number 57. It just didn't last long. And reality is, when you think about it now, Highwire should have been the single. And if that would have came out first and you rewind back this maybe to 1986, you probably have a platinum record. But uh, these guys are a little bit late to the party. But man, can Ray Gillen sing. Like, there is no way you listen to this album and come away from it going, oh, those guys suck. There's no way you feel that way. That's my 10, 9, and 8. And that was the record that I was referencing earlier on that almost was positive would be on your list and was hoping would be on your list. I left it off of my list on purpose, but that Badlands record is fantastic. Such a great record, and I can't believe it either. It sold less than 500,000, but yeah, like to your point, they didn't have a hit off that record. And let me just take a minute, let me take a minute right now to recognize the fact that I was completely baffled on the fact that I was wrong on an earlier episode. And what makes it even worse is that I grew up thinking that this was the truth. And so it was amazing to me to find out that it wasn't even the case. I always thought that Ray Gillian was Ian Gillian's son. Yeah, I was wondering why you were going there. And I'm like, well, maybe I don't know something. So I just left it alone. And I swear that someone at some point long ago made that comment that Ray Gillian was Ian Gillian's son. So I took it at that and I ran with it and it became a fact. It became the truth right in my head because whenever I heard it, that's what it was and nobody ever debated it. And I've gone over years and it's not like it's something you reference every day, but I know that I've referenced it before at different periods of time. And I guess now the fact is we got a podcast and over the last three years, I know I've even referenced it once or twice, I think, but somebody called me out on it and I'm sorry, I, I don't remember exactly who called me out on it, but somebody called me out on it and said, well, it's not 
this, it's this, and no, that they can't possibly be uh, father and son. And I, I started looking into it. I did the research, and I was like, "Holy shit, this is unbelievable! This is right." <laughs> uh, uh, it, they're not. They're not even. It's not even spelled the same way. And so, <laughs> I, you know, hey, I'm man enough to admit it. I was completely wrong. But what what makes it such of a mind blow situation is when you think it is the truth, right? Uh, yeah. you're, you're, you're honest and thinking that it's the truth. In fact, somebody even commented and I said, no, I'm right about this. And, uh, and then they kept following and said, no, you're not right about it. And, uh, sure enough, I'm not right about it. And I'm admitting that. Uh, so you can teach an old dog, new tricks. I discovered something new. Ray Gillen has no relationship to Ian Gillen other than the fact that they were both in black Sabbath at one point in time. <laughs> Yeah, what ends up happening, that's why I say a lot, depending on who you believe, there's no way to do research on some of this stuff because there, you're, there's too many stories out there, yeah. right? So it's like, okay, here's what I think is closest to the truth, and here you go. <laughs> yeah, and you know, that that was something easy to research. It's just that when something, when you hear something or you think you hear something in passing and you store it away in your memory banks... Uh, it has a way of becoming the truth and you know, you're not accessing that information every day. So there's no reason for you to doubt it, but that's what it is. It was easy to research and sure enough. Um, so yeah, all good, all great picks, got no issue with any of those picks. So, uh, good job on to my number, what, seven, six and five for me. Yep. Number seven, I'm going to spotlight a band from the South called Brother Kane. Brother Kane is a band that doesn't have a lot of exposure. Damon Johnson, who played guitar in Alice Cooper's band for a while, he's done some other things. He's out there doing a solo thing. He was in Black Star Riders for a good while as well. He was the guitar player singer in Brother Kane. And Brother Kane, I think, was one of his first bands. I think they've released three albums, but their debut album that came out in 1993, it had a couple of somewhat moderate radio, rock radio hits in Got No Shame and That Don't Satisfy Me. But that record has some really good stuff. Those two songs are among the great stuff on that record, but that record sold less than 500,000 copies. Roman Glick, who was the bass player in Brother Kane, is now the bass player in Jackal and has been the bass player in Jackal for probably the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. He's been there for a while now at this point. But Brother Kane, if you haven't had a chance to check that record out, go pick up that debut record by Brother Kane. It's a really solid, just good rock record. Next up at number six is the band Fastway. Their debut record with Dave King on vocals, Fast Eddie Clark on guitar, and Dave Shirley on drums was one of the really first sort of supergroups back in the day. This record came out in 1983. I got to see Fastway open up for ACDC on the, oh, I want to say Flick of the Switch Tour. I don't know if that's fact or not, but it was somewhere in and around that Flick of the Switch Tour. And Fastaway was fantastic. Uh, we met them all at the hotel. I still got pictures of me as a young person with Fast Eddie Clark and Dave King and Dave Shirley. And it, it, it was just a fantastic debut record. 
The song that got played probably the most is Say What You Will, but there's just a bunch of other great, fantastic songs on that record. And so I encourage folks to check out the debut record by Fastway. And then at number five, we're going to jump all the way to 2018. And this record, I think, was both on mine and Sonny's top 10 for the year uh, in 2018. And that's Animal Drive's Bite. Fantastic debut record by the band Animal Drive. I encourage people to go out there and check out Animal Drive. Their singer, Dino Jerzelek, is getting a lot of play these days. He's in a bunch of different bands right now. Animal Drive was supposed to put out a new record on Frontiers Record this year. And, of course, COVID hit. I understand the record's done. They just haven't released it. I think it's more of a uh, uh, strategic thing. And so they're holding on to that record right now. But as far as I know, that record is done. I can't wait to hear it because Bite was really, really a strong record. In fact, I listened to that record today once again, and I love that record. So that is my number five. Yeah, Brother Kane had a shot at my list because I'm a, I'm a David Johnson fan. He's got a new thing coming out. I think he's doing a power trio type of thing. And uh, he, he's out there. I think he's doing like a pledge music type thing to get money for the record. I think it's supposed to be out by the end of the year. Fastway, I know some. I don't know others. I know the trick-or-treat stuff too. It's straight ahead rock, nothing flashy to me. And I love that Animal Drive record. The issue is, is that when you look at my desert album list, there's 15 debut albums on there, <laughs> right? So some of these guys that came later to life or there's albums that I like, like Brother Kane isn't on that list. It would have never infiltrated my top 10 because there's so many on my Desert Island album list that I love instead. So it's just a lot of great music. So there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, if you can't say Desert Island album, then it's yeah. uh, a little bit too complicated for you, bro. Yeah, yeah obviously, right? <laughs> okay, my 765. So my number seven, House of Lords, self-titled. So released in uh, 1988 on Gene Simmons' label, along with RCA. You have James Christian, Greg Jufria, Lanny Cordola, Chuck Wright, Ken Mary. So House of Lords was formed a year before that in 87 by Jufria. And it was supposed, this album was supposed to be the third Jufria record, but somehow he connects with Gene Simmons and Gene Simmons decides he's going to sign him to his label. There's two conditions. One, you got to change the band name. Two, you got to change out the singer because I guess either Gene didn't like David Isley or he didn't think David Isley could be a big name. So I'm not sure. But that's Chuck Wright suggested Christian because they played together in a band called L.A. Rocks. And L.A. Rocks is going to come up later. That's why I bring it up. So Andy Johns produced this record. So they obviously had some name recognition helping them along. And House of Lords has got 12 albums out there if you didn't know that. This album, they released two singles, and that's where they made the mistake. They released I Want to Be Loved, and it got to number 58 on the Billboard Hot 100. Then they released Love Don't Lie, and that's probably the worst song on the record. And I know they wanted to do a ballad, but they should have released Edge of Your Life. And it most likely would have took them to gold because that ballad in 1988 had a shot to hit the charts. So I think that's just a, a slight mistake made. Rick Nielsen uh, co-wrote a song on this thing, so it's a pretty good debut album. My number six, this is where it starts that I have Desert Island albums that none of them went gold. And my number six is Soraya. And we've talked a little bit about Soraya before. 
This band didn't last too long. This got released 89 Polygram. It's Sandy Serres, Tony Bruno Ray, who's from Danger Danger, Greg Muneer, Gary Taylor, Chuck Bonafonte. And 87, Sandy had to kind of put this together under a different name. They go to LA. They change the name to Soraya because Sandy's kind of the face of the band. They start writing some stuff. And basically what ends up happening is Polygram wants to use Sandy Soraya more like a sex symbol and have her kind of be the female Bon Jovi. So they were trying to get promoters to establish Soraya as a good rock band and then kind of slowly move into the sex appeal piece of uh, what Soraya was. Problem is it's 1989, so this stuff is about to die off and Sandy's an attractive woman. There's no doubt it probably works if they start a few years earlier. The album did okay. It was it went to number uh, 79 on the Billboard 200. It had two singles, Love Has Taken His Tone, Back to the Bullet. They both hit in the 60s on uh, Billboard 100, and it has some great songs. Then there was a song called Timeless Love that actually did well, but it was on the Shocker soundtrack. So if that would have been on this album, this album probably goes gold because Shocker would have put it in gold. So uh, if you haven't heard Soraya's self-titled album, uh, you want to check it out. It's some great, great stuff.
And then my number five is going to sound very familiar because we talked about it on the top albums of 1990 that we released on August 29th and it's Alias and Hey, it's their first album and it's a great album and it's a desert Island album for me and Canadian Supergroup. If you want to hear more about it, go check out that episode. But if you haven't tried this and I don't know if you tried it, I, I think I suggested when you drove down to Florida, try it, but I don't know if you got a chance. I didn't get a chance to fully try the Alias record. I have messed with that Alias record a few times. And in fact, I've messed with it since we did the 1990 episode. What kind of keeps holding me up on that Alias record is the same exact thing with that first Jafria record. It gets too watered down for me. It's not that the songwriting is bad. I just, I need more guitar. That's one of the things that I really loved about House of Lords when they went from that debut record to the to the Sahara record uh, and Doug Aldridge entered the picture, it became a little bit more guitar-driven record, and therefore I ended up liking House of Lords that much better. And the same, I think, thing is kind of evident with the Alias record. Uh, it just doesn't have enough guitar in it for me. That's fair. And then the Soraya record is fantastic record. I absolutely love Love Has Taken Its Toll. That's such a great song. And the record has a lot of good stuff on it. So uh, that's all good. Uh, Soraya is an excellent pick and something that we don't spotlight quite enough. I think we may have mentioned Sandy Soraya on the Women Who Rock episode, but that was uh, just an honorable mention, if I remember correctly. All right. So my number four, three, and two. Uh, at number four, I know I've given this band plenty of love over the course of this podcast. Not a band that sits well with Hollywood. And I don't think that he hates them that bad. I just think he likes busting my chops about them. And that is Black and Blue's self-titled record from 1984. I have a personal relationship to this record. This was one of the first rock records uh, in 84 that I picked up and I absolutely love this record. I can remember Hold On to 18 being on MTV at three o'clock in the morning and it's just a solid rock record from start to finish. There really aren't any ballads on this record. It just kicks ass from start to finish. There are so many great songs on this debut Black and Blue record. If the only thing that you know by Black and Blue is the stuff that Gene Simmons did, I urge you to go back and check out this debut record because it's really, really good. The only down portion of this record is probably they do a cover of Action by The Sweet. And every band has covered that song. So it's not that they do a bad job with it. It's just a song that's kind of like meh to me. Uh, but the rest of the record, Chains Around Heaven, Auto Blast, Wicked Bitch, The Strong Will Rock, such a great record. So Black and Blue's debut record. At number three, and this is one that I had sort of forgotten about, and it was brought to my attention, and I revisited the record more recently after I had interviewed Kent Hilly from Perfect Plan. One of Kent's favorite records is the debut record by Giant, Last of the Runaways. This record is absolutely fantastic. I went back and listened to this record uh, since he mentioned it to me, and I had forgotten just how good of a record this is. Dan Huff 
is an amazing singer and guitar player and producer. So good. He's gone on to produce a bunch of other stuff in Nashville since Giant has kind of disbanded. But Giant put out some really good records, and this debut record, Last of the Runaways, is killer.
So that's my number three record. And then at number two, we go to 2007 and Airborne's Running Wild. I tore this record up. And in 2007, where we were kind of getting away from listening to full albums all the time, I absolutely love this debut Airborne record from start to finish. It's damn near a perfect record uh, for me. And it might be a Desert Island record for me, but I love Airborne's Running Wild from 2007. So that is my three. Yeah, the black and blue record, it's good. I always give you a hard time because it's easy to give you a hard time. The giant record, I've never heard. I think I've heard the single. I don't remember what the single was called. And I remember that guy having a good voice. So I got to check that album out. Yeah, because that record, if anything, those giant records are right up your alley. I mean, yeah. if you are if you like the alias stuff and stuff like that, those giant records are definitely straight up your alley. And then if I remember right, Airborne is kind of like an ACDC type thing. Yeah, Airborne is like ACDC on steroids, especially with that debut record, Running Wild. Yeah, I've heard a couple of songs off that. It wasn't bad at all. Okay, so my 432 have some things in common. One, all three are Desert Island records for me. Two, all were released in 1989. Three, we've interviewed all three singers. <laughs> so, number four, Mr. Big self-titled. And uh, we're talking 1989 Atlantic. We got Paul Gilbert, Billy Sheehan, Pat Torpy, and the craziness of Eric Martin. And we had an opportunity to interview him. And we released that episode May 23rd, 2020. And he's a nut. There's no doubt. And this was a super group. He was the nicest guy ever. There's no doubt about that either. The cover of Humble Pie's 30 Day in the Hole, I think is great. According to Billy, Wind Me Up, which is a great song and is one of my faves on it, is supposedly Oh Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison played backwards. I, I don't know. I'm not a musician, dude. So I don't know. I guess it's possible. This thing went to number 46 on the Billboard 200. The problem was, is that the two singles were addicted to that rush and blame it on my youth and neither hit the billboard hot 100, but if they would have released either had enough or anything for you as one of the ballads, this could have put them on the map earlier. The next album does put them on the map because of to be with you, but they could have had a hit top 40 on this record if that would have happened. And then this record would have went gold, but instead it didn't. So if you haven't had a chance to uh, listen to Mr. Big's self-titled, you want to give it a shot. Yes, I know there are a bunch of show-offs because they got a bunch of talent and they can be noodly. I get it. But, you know, I guess if you got it, flaunt it. Talking about nuts, my number three is Lord Tracy, Deaf Gods of Babylon. This thing has always been a Desert Island album for me from the first time I heard it. I don't know what it is about this album that connected. It's part fun. It's part Van Halen. The timing was right. It comes out as I'm turning 20 years old. And, you know, you got Kinley Wolf, who was in Black Oak, Arkansas. You got Chris Craig on drums, Jimmy Rusadoff on guitar, and then Crazy Terry Glaze. We had a chance to talk to him. That interview could have lasted five years. That was episode 84. It was released on February 3rd, 2019. And he is crazy nuts, but tons of fun. They basically disbanded two years after this album came out. And then Kinley Wolf, who's the bass player, ended up playing for the cult for a while, three or four years. The last 15 years or so, the band's made appearances. They're all good friends or whatever and super fun, but um, they're not, you know, they got other parts of life they're living right now. But the singles were Out With The Boys, which had a video, and Foolish Love, which I cannot believe didn't do well. So I don't know if it's MCA 
not putting this ballad out there for the radio stations to play? Is it because it's 1989 and there's too many ballads out there already? But Foolish Love is a great ballad. It should have done better. But unfortunately, this band didn't last that long. And then my number two is a band called Eyes. And it's their self-titled record. Depending on who you believe, it got released in either 89 or 90. And the reason I say that is I have the vinyl says 89 and the CD says 90. So I don't know what to believe. Curb Records, which is a disaster of a record company because they were doing like hip hop and all that other stuff. I don't even know why they had rock bands on the label. But you heard about LA Rocks before. Well, this is the band that LA Rocks became. So Aldi Damien on drums, Jimmy O'Shea on bass, Steve Doherty on guitar, and Jeff Scott Soto on vocals. Initially, this had Kelly Hansen and Chuck Wright instead of Jimmy O'Shea and Jeff Scott Soto. So this LA Rocks band had pieces of it that kind of just spread out and ended up being these other bands. If you've ever heard the song Don't Turn Around, most likely you've heard the Ace of Bass version. Yes, I said Ace of Bass. It's a song written by Diane Warren, and there is an incredible cover of it on this album. It should have honestly been one of the singles. Jeff says this band could have materialized probably in 86, 87. If it did, it would have done a lot better. And we had a great interview with Jeff on uh, episode 33. We released that February 20th of 2018. This thing had two singles on it, Calling All Girls, and nobody said it was easy. And I don't know what the problem is, but nobody said it was easy. Is one of the best ballads ever. So I don't know why Curb Records doesn't know when they got a hit on their hands and go push it on radio and whether it's payola, whatever you got to do, that thing would have made money. But instead, five people own this record and I happen to be one of them and I got two copies. So there you go. Eyes self-titled.
<laughs> yeah, I'm not that familiar with that eyes because I don't think you can get it. I don't think it's on Spotify. And so I have no way of really listening to that record. The only thing I think I've heard off that record are the songs that we played on the podcast. And that's about it. Who's more crazy, Terry Glaze or Eric Martin? You know, no, I think Terry is probably ultimately more crazy, but Eric is <laughs> Eric is just fun. To this day, both the Terry Glaze and Eric Martin interviews are probably two of my favorites that we've done because they were so relaxed, both those interviews. And we do a lot of interviews on this show. And some of them have been stiff and some of them have been just fun. And it's when you when you get somebody that doesn't have an agenda and you don't really have an, an agenda, it comes more natural. And both the Terry Glaze and Eric Martin interviews were like that for me anyway, personally. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Terry wanted to do video, so we did video with Terry while we uh, sipped on a glass of red wine. Terry's wife was in the background, and that was just a good time. That was like a hangout on a Friday evening kind of thing. And uh, yeah, that that was great. And I love both of those records. That debut Mr. Big record for sure would have been on my list, but I was pretty sure it would be on yours. I love that record almost start to finish. Big Love is another tune that I think would have done pretty well. That's a great record. And then uh, Lord Tracy. Yeah, it's not a surprise to me that record didn't do well because it's kind of all over the place. But I love that record. I think it's a great record. It's just it's sort of all over the place a little bit, but a really fun record nonetheless. So great picks once again. Yeah, what I found out when I did some of the research and just kind of put this stuff together. And some of these albums I've been listening to, hell, the last 30 years, I guess, is that it's either the record company didn't promote it well, or, you know, the timing was bad, or the album is just too diverse. Like this Lord Tracy album, there's punk on there. There's rap on there. There's straight ahead rock on there. There's goofiness on there. Like it's great, but you just confuse the listener. So it's hard to get into. Right. Right. So it can't be that diverse, I guess. All right. So that brings us to our number ones, right? That's correct. You want to go first or shall I? Uh, go ahead. Cause now you got me curious. <laughs> My number one record, which sold less than 500,000 copies, released in 1982, solidified my fandom for this band. I know Hollywood is a big fan of this band, and that is Night Ranger's debut, Dawn Patrol. It is a perfect record for me. I love this record from start to finish. And they still play Don't Tell Me You Love Me on radio today, why people didn't go back and make this at least a gold record is sort of surprising, but this record is phenomenal. Man, Eddie's coming out tonight. Sing me away. Don't tell me you love me. Just so many great songs. Can't buy me a thrill. So, so many good songs. Love, love this record. And uh, so that is my number one. Chasing the spot 
it had a shot. It ended up 16th on the ranking that I did. And the reason was like at night, she sleeps, call my name and play rough kind of lose me a little bit. Yeah. And I like all those tunes. Yeah. And they're good tunes, but they don't knock me off my socks or knock me off my rocker. I guess you can't knock me off my socks. You have to rock, <laughs> knock me out of my socks, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, it, it had a chance to make my list. It just didn't. My number one, it's possible it sold 2,000 copies. I don't have a clue because when it's released in 2013 on a independent label basically called Loud and Proud, you have no idea if you sold any of it. I will tell you, I heard one of the songs. You know how when the Super Bowl is going to a commercial, right? And they'll throw up the score and like play out a song as they're fading to the commercial. Yeah. I heard it there and I'm like, oh my God, that was Elevate. Right. And Nicole's like, what the hell's wrong with you? I'm like, they were playing Elevate. They were playing Elevate. She's like, what the hell is Elevate?
Winery Dogs, baby. Oh. Their debut album, I absolutely love it. It got to the Billboard 200 number 27, but I don't know if that means they sold 2,000 copies. No, you don't know in 2013. No singles. And you're talking about three-piece supergroup, Richie Kotzen, Mike Portnoy, Billy Sheehan. And yes, it's very musician-y, if that's a word. There's no doubt. They show off a bunch because it feels like a Mr. Big kind of record. But I've seen them live several times. Nicole's seen them live several times. The kids have seen them live several They love them. If you've never heard this stuff, it's like blues-based rock with a, a little bit of hint of 90s. It's got a little bit of hint of hair metal. It's got a little bit of hint of soul. There's really not a lot to hate about this record except for people get, well, why are they always like kind of soloing? Like they're, they're kind of showing off. So? So what? But uh, I love this record, and uh, I don't I don't know if you've ever even told me if you've heard this record the whole way through. Of course I have. We've seen, both Jen and I have seen Winery Dogs live. We both loved them live. I love that record. I love the first record for sure. Uh, I think they tapered off a little bit on the second record. I still like the second record, but the first record is phenomenal. I think that that is exactly what people don't like about it is it's less song oriented and more noodly oriented. And so the difference in Mr. Big and Winery Dogs, because you've referenced both of those bands a lot, is that I think Mr. Big is just a tad less noodly. <laughs> They're all great players, all of them, but I think Mr. Big is more song-oriented than the Winery Dogs. And I don't mean that in a negative way in any way, shape, or form. That's my perception. I love both bands for different reasons, but fantastic band, fantastic live, great. Yeah, I think the difference is Mr. Big's got Eric Martin, right? So you've got four distinct members doing four distinct different things. When you get to the Winery Dogs, the lead singer is a guitarist first. So if he's got a choice between the two, he's most likely going to land on guitar first. I don't know. He does both of them fantastic. So Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. So, <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. So share some of your uh, just missed or some of the ones that uh, we didn't talk about. Yeah, there was really, well, we'll talk about one in a second. So there was another 11 or 12 that had a shot. I'll just go through them quick. XYZ. Yep. They're on my list. Their debut's great. Yep. Uh, Amaranth. The first Amaranth record is great. Uh, it almost made my list. We've talked about Talisman before it was on the list. Yep. Taiketo, Don't Come Easy. Okay. That almost made it. Hardline Double Eclipse. That's a great record. Yeah, it is. I didn't think about that one. Yeah. Goddard first record is awesome. Yep. A band called Slick Toxic. It's called Doing the Nasty. They're a Canadian group. That first album's awesome. Somebody posted about that recently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Lynch Bob's Wicked Sensation could have made the list. Yep. I had Brother Kane on that list. And then I had Blue Murder on the list. And I, I could have swore Blue Murder would have ended up in the top 10. And I listened to the record the other day and I'm like, it's good. It's not as good as the ones I picked. If you haven't listened to Blue Murder in a while and you just listen to them, it's a great record. You start listening to them against Soraya or House of Lords or Badlands, then all of a sudden it's like, eh, it's okay. Right? So it's when you got to start comparing that it gets tough. But we couldn't pick GNR or I could have picked Night Songs or Skid Row or Warren's first record. Like there's, there's all these like Velvet Revolver. I didn't know Contraband went double platinum. I had no clue. Yeah. It's a great first record. Tesla mechanical residence. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many, I didn't know Wasp went gold. I, I figured Wasp would make my top 10. 
Yeah. <laughs> Wasp was on my list, but yeah, because it was less than a million, but it, it was a gold record. So that's why I, I took it out. Yeah. I had no idea Skid Row went five times platinum. I had no clue. Shit. How could you not? It had freaking 18 in life and remember you on it. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know it was that big. Wow. So how about you? Uh, do you have any that just missed? Yeah. So I had some that just missed. Jackal uh, self-titled record sold less than less than two million, but more than a million. So that kind of took came off my list. But their debut record is really good. Armored Saint, March of the Saints. I know Sonny's not a big Armored Saint fan, but I love that first record, March of the Saints. Less than five hundred thousand copies there. Bullet Boys. It went gold but it didn't sell a million copies. And that was, that's a desert Island record for me. That self-titled bullet boys record. Fantastic record. The darkness self-titled record or not. I'm sorry. It's not self-titled permission to land their debut record that sold gold and, but was less than a million copies. That's a really good record, a really strong record. Like Sonny mentioned, wicked sensation. Absolutely. Enough's enough self-titled record. Uh, was really good. The Scream, Let It Scream with John Karabi. That's a great record. Less than 500,000 copies. Love Hate, Blackout in the Red Room. I absolutely love that record. That was released in 1990, so that was part of the 1990 series. That's a great record. Stripers, uh, Soldiers Under Command. Fantastic record. Less than a million copies there. Uh, Saigon Kicks, self-titled record, less than 500,000 copies there. And that's a really interesting record. I think it's a really solid record, but it's definitely different uh, because the times were changing. And that's an interesting record, but I like it a lot. Tor Tora's Surprise Attack, less than 500,000 copies. All these bands coming out today, the Dirty Honeys, the Greta Van Fleets, you know, they're making a lot of headway and I love it for rock and roll and people really like these, but go back and listen to surprise attack by Tora Tora. Uh, it's every bit as good as the dirty honey stuff that's coming out today. And, uh, Anthony quarter sounds, you know, that guy sounds a little bit like Anthony quarter back in the day. So go check it out. Tor Tora surprise attack. Great record from start to finish the wasp you already mentioned. So, Oh, and another one, and I've given love to this record before, but 1991, South Gang released Tainted Angel. And that is a fantastic rock record with a whole lot of help from Desmond Child on that record, but it still sold less than 500,000 copies because of the timing of it all. And that's a really good record from start to finish. So go check out that South Gang record. And that I don't even know if you can get that because it's not on Spotify so I don't know if you can even get those South Gang records. They were on a label called Charisma, which was owned by, I think, Atlantic Records at the time. Yeah, if you can get those South Gang records, both of them are really good. Tain and Angel and um, Group Therapy, I think, is the second record as well. And so both of those records are solid rock records that sold less than 500,000 copies. So there you go. Those are my honorable mentions, and there are a whole lot more that I even touch on. Yeah, the two that surprised me, because like I said, I, I went didn't want to do uh, platinum albums and I didn't want to do gold albums, right? I had no idea Babylon 80 went gold. Surprised the hell out of me. Wow, that is surprising. Holy Diver went platinum. Yeah, that one doesn't surprise me. And Holy Diver was definitely on my list, but I knew that 
because that record got a lot of uh, love when it first came out because, you know, Ronnie was leaving Black Sabbath after they had had all that success of Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. So, and that record, God damn, that record's so good. Okay, so you know, we always talk Kiss. You wanted the best, and you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So we mentioned a little bit before Fraley's Comet. So basically what happens is Fraley's forming a solo band in 84. Right, he's left Kiss already in '82. He goes on tour, performs a few Kiss classics, some new material. But in '84, his band is him, Richie Scarlet, John Regan, this guy named Arthur Stead on keyboards, and Anton Fig. In '85, Scarlet leaves the band. He wants to go do a solo career, which basically materialized to nothing, and ends up coming back in '89. And Arthur uh, Stead is dropped, and. All of a sudden you add Todd Haworth and he's going to play guitars, keyboards, and do lead vocals. So it's kind of a nice two for one trade. They release Fraley's Comet's first album in April 87. It gets to number 43 on the Billboard 200. It's got some great songs. Rock Soldier had a great video. Breakout, Calling to You. And then this song was a small hit. It got to number 27 on the mainstream rock charts. And it's originally written by Russ Ballard, who also wrote New York Groove. Here is Fraley's Comet with their first single off the first album called Into the Night.
Gotta love it. That's a classic for me. Yeah, Fraley didn't go gold either, and but this album did well. And if you remember that uh, they released like a live album right after that, just to try to keep up because Fraley didn't have, he was getting hammered all the time. At least that's what Todd and John said. So it's like they didn't have another album in them yet. Yeah. So they released that live plus one with the, with words are not enough and a bunch of live songs just to get them to second sighting. And they were dead before second sighting even got released. The interesting thing about Fraley is when he came here, I was going to go see Ace anyway. And I saw him several times, but one of the times he played with bad company, one of the times he played with Y&T, one of the times he played with Lord Tracy. So there was, there was the bands that were also on the bill that I wanted to go see, but I remember tone tapping me on the shoulders. Like, why does Ace look like he's playing in slow motion? Like everything <laughs> is on time, but he looks like he's in slow motion. So we didn't know if he was playing like every other note. Like we don't even know. Right. He just, I think he just kind of always looks lazy, <laughs> but, um, I don't know. It was just, and then he fell off the stage in 90 <laughs> right in front of us. <laughs> to, I think Tone and I drove home that day and Tone's like, okay, this is not my favorite anymore. I'm like, dude, just cause he fell off stage, whatever. <laughs> Good old Ace. Gotta love Ace. Did you see the YouTube video? God bless him. Which one? The Rachel Gordon interview? No. Oh, oh boy. We won't get into it, but uh, she, uh, as my kids would say, spills the tea on some shocking stuff that supposedly Ace told her about Paul and Jean. I'm surprised she's not already sued up to be honest with you. Who is she being interviewed by? Uh, some guy, you know, he's just kind of playing. I don't know who the interviewer was. I don't know him personally, but he was doing what I would do. He was kind of playing to her. Oh man, that sounds terrible. What else did he say? And she's just <laughs> spilling, spill like, uh, sexual choices, uh, underage stuff, crazy shit. How recent is that? Uh, this is very, very recent. We're talking a couple of weeks ago. Oh, wow. It's on YouTube. Yeah. Sounds like it's worth a listen. <laughs> it's, it's 90 minutes. Yeah. And it's worth the listen. Trust me. Oh yeah. I can just speed that up too on YouTube. <laughs> so that's a nice little episode. You know, some great debut rock albums. I, when I started really looking into it, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many. We got to put some rules to this thing. Yeah. Otherwise it would have been easy. And otherwise we'd have been talking about the same debut records, you know, Guns and Roses and Rat and, uh, you know, just there's so many classic, like huge debut records. And that's why I said at the beginning of the show, you know, they say a band has its entire career to write its first record. But what do you think the best overall debut record is by any rock band? You think it's Appetite for Destruction? I think most people would say that. And that's not my favorite. Like yeah. I, I made a list of if we didn't have any rules and yeah. it would have ended up number seven on my list. What would have been number one? Hailstorm. Hailstorm. Really? Yeah. I absolutely love that record. Did you wear it out? War. When it came, I didn't even know about Hailstorm. Tony's the one who told me about it. Yeah. And once I started listening, man, I, that is an album I probably listen to twice a month still. Wow. I love that record. We got to get her on the show, man. Oh my God. She's got time on her hands. <laughs> she did. Well, she's doing a bunch of dang stuff on her own. A bunch of like, I don't think she's got a podcast, but I mean, she was doing a weekly video show and all kinds of other stuff. And she's been on other people's shows. So baby, anybody knows uh, Lizzie Hale or her management 
let us know and uh we'll try and get her on the show because i don't know nobody in that camp yeah i'm assuming number one for you would be van halen my number one all-time uh debut record yeah man it'd be hard not to say that for sure there's been some great records but yeah van halen would be right up there i mean that is my all-time favorite band uh even though that's probably not necessarily my favorite record for them but that's only because mostly of uh fatigue for a lot of the songs that are on that record but yeah uh probably so guns and roses is real close because i wore the shit out of that appetite for destruction so it's gonna be real real close up there uh for all time well yeah great episode anything else we need to cover before we get on out of here no thank you for the feedback uh thanks for connecting with us and uh thanks for correcting steven it's nice to be not the only one doing that exactly and um hey at least you know that i'm man enough to admit when i'm wrong and by golly i was wrong so there you go come join the grown-up rock loud minority facebook group because that's exactly where that got exposed in our group it's a private facebook group and so come on over and join all you got to do is ask to join and we'll let you in we talk about the podcast and episodes as well as new music and concerts and anything that's going on in the world of music so come on over and join and start communicating with all the rest of the listeners in there So, yep, that's it. Once again, we appreciate each and every one of you guys for listening to us each week. And have a great week. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Lay us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.